0: Welcome to Engineer to be Excellent, the podcast for engineers and managers of small to medium sized businesses who are ready to scale their PCB testing through automation. Today, I'm joined by my guest, Zach Peterson, owner of Northwest Engineering Solutions and the guy from the Alton videos to talk about how he designs for tests. Zach, welcome to the show. Hey, Paul. Thanks for having me. Nice to to hear you. Finally, this has been a while since we've tried to connect, but uh, we got it done cool
1: yeah 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 definitely (laughs) um yeah i I always like to say when i'm when i'm the guest it's nice to be in the guest seat sometimes instead of being in the host seat all the time
0: um so for people who are meeting you for the first time could you share a little bit about who you are and what you do
1: sure yeah so um as you mentioned uh, in the intro, um, I have my own company, uh, Northwest Engineering Solutions. Um, we're a PCB design firm, and we do uh, technical content and research and strategy uh, for larger EDA companies, uh, most notably Altium, as well as some PCB manufacturers. Um, I, uh, I'm also known as the guy from the Altium videos, um, occasionally recognized in the electronics world. Uh, that. That's because, of course, if you watch the Altium Academy YouTube channel, which is um, one of Altium's YouTube channels, um, I am uh, one of the uh, creators that has a lot of content on that channel. Um, there are, of course, other very talented people on that channel, um, but I, I do tend to get recognized from from that YouTube channel. The, uh, the, the things we do, uh, as far as like content creation, you know, they're really complemented by the design work that my company does. You know, we write about the stuff that we do and then we do the stuff that we write about. So that's kind
0: of how I like to phrase it. Um, so I understand, uh, you have quite a broad background. My understanding is you uh, have a background in physics.
1: Yeah. I think that's not typical for someone who gets into PCB design, um, one thing that I noticed from you know when I was doing my my grad work and then my my PhD studies um, was that a lot of people who did end up going into industry tended to go into the semiconductor industry and not necessarily into PCBs or components or manufacturing. You know, I think because of where I was doing. My work, um, which is, you know, Portland State, we have a huge Intel campus in Portland. Um, it's actually in Hillsborough, but it's, you know, on the edge of Portland. And so, of course, they're always at the universities recruiting people. So, I you know, I think it's natural that people kind of gravitate a little more towards semiconductors. But, yeah, I went into PCBs. For me, you know, the way in was through RF design. And that's because uh, my my PhD topic was in something called random lasers. And um, I did other topics as well uh, in my research. So uh, metal oxide, semiconductors, um, metal oxide, optoelectronics, and then gas sensors. And then, uh, you know, the bulk of my, my research, though, is in, is in random lasers. And so because I was doing theory, the experiment, the analysis, um, of course, you, you learn um, pretty much everything that you need to know, at least from a conceptual level, to do RF design. And so for me, that was the easy way to get into PCB design.
0: Oh, that, that seemed like that like that would be very helpful. Because my understanding is, when you're starting to RF, there's a lot of uh, like you know lump components you can't consider, and a lot of um, things that, that the physics side of it would. It seems like it would relate very well to it, um, on, maybe on a very um, deeper level. I'm not sure.
1: I mean, a little, a little bit, yeah. Um... A, a lot of those results from electromagnetics, especially that have to do with wave propagation and resonances, they all start to crop up again in RF design, including in RF printed circuit design. And then, you know, when you're doing um, when you do a physics uh, graduate degree, you'll end up having to, to to take a class, probably where the textbook is uh, David Griffith's uh, Classical Electrodynamics, and you'll have all of the different antenna problems and and that kind of stuff. So so yeah, you you really do get all of those fundamentals, uh, for being able to do RF design, like I said, from a conceptual level, if you do a physics degree, and you know, kind of the missing piece is is really you know PCB manufacturing and fabrication, and so as long as you can understand that and you can learn CAD tools, and you know, I've had to use CAD, uh, prior to to getting into industry, yeah, it was actually pretty easy for for someone like myself to to make the jump into PCB design, and then you know, because high speed, uh, digital designs are showing their RF character when you get up to very high signal bandwidths. That was also, you know really easy for me to jump into. Whereas you know I think a lot of people really struggle uh, to get into those two areas if they come from a background of just kind of your you know your classic digital electronics embedded programming kind of kind of background. Th- those those fields are important, right? I mean, a, a lot of jobs rely on those skills. And I think they're important for anybody working in PCB design to to know, but they don't really serve someone well, who's trying to get into, you know, RF design and, you know, really high speed uh, digital design.
0: So like, um, so I understand you don't, you're a, um, what do you call it, like a, a contractor or a, a consultant, I guess, for Altium?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, multiple people have made the joke that they might as well just hire me already. Yes. <laughs> consultant <laughs> for, yes. Uh, the 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 title we came up with one day just out of the blue was technical consultant and i was like yeah that's that's fine Let's go for it <laughs> so so that was what we came up with one day maybe that maybe it'll change later yeah. who knows
0: wow wow so i really appreciate the um uh, the content i've seen on on youtube um your one minute design reviews i think are are very helpful nice concise little little nuggets of of goodness that uh really touch on a lot of topics and the depth of it is, uh, I think appropriate for a one minute review, but certainly not dumbed down. It's, uh, it's very concise and it's very, I find it very valuable. I listen to, I watch them all the time. It's on my, uh, one of my favorites list. So I got happy you do that.
1: Yeah. You know, we, we came up with that, um, you know, myself and, and my videographer, Joel, who, by the way, I couldn't do any of this stuff without the video team in the background making it look and feel you know as professional as it as it can get and doing the graphics and editing and and all that you know all that stuff that we take for granted um so without them you know what i do is meaningless honestly but the uh yeah the one minute design reviews we kind of just came up with that out of the blue and and just like you said it was meant to be you know punchy to the point we didn't want to dumb it down we didn't want it to be like, you know, one minute explainers. We really wanted it to, to be something where it's like, you know, we're going to hit really the target, like top three points, let's say, that someone could could uh, focus on to improve a design. And this all came about because, you know, I, I had people contacting me on LinkedIn so much to mm-hmm. to look at their design or they'd say, like, I have this problem. Problem well, with this design, I, I don't quite know how to solve it, or you know, how would you approach this kind of design? And so that's when it, it hit me, like, hey, we need to start doing these these reviews and start filming them. And um, yeah, like you said, you know, like you said, they're fun to watch, and um, they've they've really taken off. In fact, when I was at PCB West. Uh, this year, um, a couple of people walked up to me and they were like, oh yeah, you, you were roasting designs on, on YouTube. (laughs) I was like, (laughs) well, I'm trying not to roast people, but you know, they, they ask to be reviewed on the channel. So, so we'll do it, you know, and we'll make it fun. And, you know, people have also messaged me out of blue saying, you know, oh yeah, I learned a lot from, from watching these there. You know, you're, you're kind of pointing out some, some really common mistakes that, that newcomers might make. And that's really the, at the end of the day, that's really the driving goal behind, you know, what we're doing is really helping the newcomers come in and understand what it's like to work in the industry. Because as I'm sure you're aware, you know, there's a big demographic shift going on, uh, especially with electrical engineering and electronics engineering. Um, Of all the engineering disciplines, it's like way down there with, you know, student enrollment and graduation. It's growing. But it's still, you know, it's nothing like it was for the past two decades compared to software. So, you know, there's been this big talent gap. And I think with new people realizing that this is really important, especially with, you know, things like the CHIPS Act, kind of driving that whole focus around electronics and electrical engineering. You know, you now have another generation of students who I think is going to start coming into this field. And, of course, they they, they need to catch up. They need to get up to that high level really quickly. And so, you know, we want to create some of the resources that will help people do that. And of course, be successful when using CAD tools as well, whether it's Altium or some other CAD tool. And and that way they're not just, you know, spinning their wheels going round and round with designs.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, just like uh, I think anybody who's trying to design anything using uh, some other uh, a I see is you got to have a you gotta have a reference design. You gotta know where to begin, and I think these uh, that kind of content really kind of gets people kind of what do you call it um, in the right, right space where they can start to have um, not
1: reinventing the trying to reinvent the wheel over and over.
0: Sure, yeah, not yeah, not reinventing the it and give you a place to begin where you actually have something that you could begin with instead of a blank piece of paper. So yeah, that's that's very helpful. I've I've used it many times. Yeah. Yeah,
1: And it, you know, that's, that's kind of how I learned, uh, quite a few things too, was, was looking at well done, well documented examples that I could reverse engineer. Cause that's, that's usually my most effective way of learning something. I don't care if it's a math problem or how to design a board. Um, you know, look at a well-documented example and then reverse engineer those steps. And then I can apply that, that process to something
0: else. Oh sure, yeah, that's that's uh, that's gold. So um, for design for test, uh, what kind of thinking goes for you? What kind of uh, thinking goes into how to approach designing a board?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. I feel like uh, this is something that has to be addressed whenever we're doing Rev One, you know, first first round prototype, and you, you. you usually start with like a few specs that you know that are ironclad, we must hit this. And so, you know, that's a good place to start. We know that we're going to need to hit these specs. So that helps you set yourself up for being able to at least quickly take all those measurements and verify that you mm-hmm. are actually hitting those specs. I think what comes next is really difficult, especially just looking at the board level, right? Because if if you get back prototype and something doesn't work, you're probably going to have to spend a lot of time probing around every single little circuit with a multimeter anywhere you can and trying to figure out, okay, where did we mess up? What did we not have connected? What circuit was missing from this board that should have been there? Where where do we have a shunt? You know, maybe there's a fabrication defect, let's say, where do we have a shunt? Where do we have an open? those kinds of things. So that that's really where it's very difficult on simple boards. I think there's maybe a propensity to just, you know, break off as many test points as you can, whether it's just like a pad on the PCB Mm -hmm. or whether it's like a probe hook. So you could, you know, get a scope probe on there. And yeah, that's fine if you don't have a, a lot of nets, but what if it's, you know, a big board with, you know, a few hundred nets on it you can't put a few hundred test points everywhere so so how do you choose right and then how do you design this to to possibly be debuggable that that's i think where it's really challenging and you know requires a little bit of foresight and and experience i'll give you just an example of something i was going through today like literally today on <laughs> a day of recording trying to trying to debug a uh, a charger for a a power system and so you know this particular power system i'm going to be a little vague intentionally because of, you know, people's IP and all that kind of stuff. But this particular power system is integrated on a board with a, with a microcontroller and there's, you know, some power management stuff that goes on, on this larger system. And it's all, you know, run on this one board. And one of the things it has to do is know when to turn on charging. And, you know, of course we're wondering, well, why are we not, why is the charger not turning on? Why are we not seeing this? And, you know, of course I didn't have all of the test points I need to be able to diagnose what's going on and you know i I feel like every time we get into a complex board like that that's what happens right you kind of end up kicking yourself like i wish i had this one test point here but how could i have known that that was going to have to be the thing that i was going to have to trace through to find the root cause and so i I guess you know the moral of this is that you know you try and do what you can on the stuff that's going to be most critical for at least indicating where the problems are going to be. And that helps you, you know, really narrow down to specific portions of the system. And that way, you're at least not poking around blindly. So, you know, what I did do when I originally designed this was there were test points on indicator pins, right? Coming off of the main main components. So I could at least see when something was on or when it was off and then diagnose: okay, should this be on or should this be off? That kind of thing. So that was really useful for at least narrowing down Okay, this one circuit is not turning on. Why is it not turning on? And as it turned out, we just didn't connect the 3 volt ra- the 3.3 volt rail over mm-hmm. to this one circuit, right? Super simple fix, right? I mean, literally just jump a wire from one spot where the 3.3 volt is to the other spot where it should be, mm-hmm. and magic, it works, right? But, you know, how could we have known? Well, the only way I was able to really narrow it down to there was because I had enough of those indicator test points on like the really critical indicators to be able to say, it's just this portion of the system that's the problem. So I think from a board design point of view, when you're trying to figure out, you know, where to put all those test points and indicators, you know, that's a good place to do it. There are other things you can do too. Like, you know, one thing that that we often do is like LEDs, you know, indicator LEDs on certain parts of the circuit. So that way you don't even have to probe it. You just can see it, right? Visual cue, you know, when something's on or something's off little stuff like that.
0: Oh, I hadn't really thought about that. I always think of like, uh, I didn't even thought about LEDs as being part of the, uh, like a test point, which it is, it's a visual test point. But uh, I always think of LEDs as, you know, something the user uses for it, but not the person designed the board um, or testing the board. Well, that's pretty good. I like that. Um, so how about like, if you had different functional blocks, like you had a power supply and then the power supply fed um, a pick and then the PIC drove some MOSFETs or something. So in between those fun- functional blocks, you could maybe narrow it down to the subsection uh, with with fewer test points. It seems.
1: Yeah, yeah. My, microcontrollers, <laughs> right? I think get a little little tougher. You know, I think I think you're talking about like PIC32 or something like that, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Sure.
1: Yeah, yeah. So like, yeah, microcontrollers like that, they can get a little challenging just because there's so many pins on them, and like I said, right, how do you choose, you know, which are the main pins you should break off of? But I think when you have different functional blocks, um, when one of them's a processor, you kind of have to rely on code. Whereas when one of them is not a processor, and like you said, maybe it's just a gate or, you know, FETS or something, um, you have to focus on the specific components. And like, what is the main function they have to perform? And can I probe that? Like the the board I was working on today you know the the fets are not in like your um uh like your sot kind of package you know or like a to kind of package where it's like the leads are right there it's really <laughs> easy to get at them right these leads are under the package they're a specialty package right you can't probe those leads right so if there's no other component connected to them that you can reach right you're, you're kind of out of luck especially sure. if something is in isn't in the interior of the board yeah so, so sometimes you know, picking off those functional blocks and realizing, hey, I'm not going to be able to probe this. We need to add something here that I can actually get a scope onto, or even mm-hmm. just tap a multimeter onto. You know, that's going to be really important. Gosh, I, if speaking of PICs, you know, or any other microcontroller, honestly, STM32, some of those come in BGA packages. Good luck probing that if you didn't, if you right. don't have another component somewhere connected to it. Because sometimes right. those signals, they just run straight out from one component to the other component. And if it goes through the interior of the board, you might not be able to probe it anywhere.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I, I would imagine if you, in some signals, if you're, um, like if you had it going from, from point to point, like for, say, say BGA to BGA where there's no access to it, you could bring out it to another layer. But I, think, I understand sometimes that can uh, affect the, like the... The effects of it basically can, it introduce errors in itself by having little stubs
1: yeah yeah it could it really d- depends what you're what you're working with i think the, the other thing too is like you know there's components on the on the top and bottom layer too right mm-hmm. and if you're dealing with a packed board you may not have any room to you know bring that one trace out or bring all those traces out onto those surface layers to start probing on stuff Another thing to think about, too, is, you know, if you if you bring let's say, you know, I bring those traces out that I might need to measure onto the bottom layer. And then I've got my excuse me, I've got my components on the top layer. Well, it's kind of hard sometimes to actually like get back there and actually reach anything on the back layer. You know, someone might say, well, just turn the board over and like, yeah, for some boards you can. But sometimes you've got like connectors connected to other stuff and connected to other boards. And it's not so easy to like turn this thing around and actually get like a good solid point where you can actually probe on something. And so then maybe you have to have some, some copper exposed so you can solder a wire on and then you got to probe the wire. And if that's not already exposed, now you're scratching off solder mask. Well, did you do that accurately? Did you sure, actually scratch sure. off the right stuff? Mm-hmm. So yeah. So the little stuff like that to, to think about as far as when you're, where you are going to probe stuff? The other thing that I've done um and, and, This is just kind of like me not thinking about it from a prior project, but as I've even packed my test points so close in a really dense board that like, it's kind of hard to probe just one of the test points or even to solder onto just one of the test points. If they're so close together, you know, you now risk bridging test points, which could be bad, right? You can introduce a new error, or if you bridge a test point that's, you know, power to an IO, now you could even burn out a component.
0: Oh yeah, yeah, and, and sometimes uh, when we're laying out the boards and we're got the the board in our in a uh, you know view in, in our our um, our, pla- our like Altium whatever that um, it may not appear when you're designing it that you've actually put it in there like a, a, a half a millimeter apart, whereas when you actually look at the physical board, it's very obviously that you you messed up.
1: <laughs> yeah, 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 and then with like those little keystone probes, uh, the, mm-hmm. the the probe hooks for like scopes. Yeah, I've put those so close together with the intent of putting a scope on to this, you know, test point. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm never going to hook a a probe onto that test point and just like leave the probe there. Not happening. You know, so then you got to sit there and like hold it with, you know, hold your oscilloscope probe, which is a pain in the backside. No one wants to do that either. Mm -hmm. Um, And then imagine having to do that while you also have to probe something else on the top side. Good luck, right? You almost need five hands to be able to do it.
0: Yeah. I found another thing um, that actually this came up when I was um, interviewing a different uh, interviewing. I had another podcast guest on that. uh, He pointed out that having sufficient number of ground points, because like, if you're testing things, sometimes you need, you know, you you may not have an available test point. You realize, well, I have two test point, two uh, ground points, but they're on opposite sides of the board. And I can't really, I mean, you can't reach them, but it's less than ideal to reach across the board and and try to grab a test point. So lots of test points can also be helpful. I think. I mean, lots of ground yeah. points could be helpful.
1: Yeah. No, I I totally agree. Um, that's another one that I'm I'm gonna admit it. I'm guilty of of that one. I'll break out all the test points for the signals, but you know maybe one for ground. <laughs> and, and like yeah. you say, it's on the it's on the other edge of the board, and that's too far away. That's actually that's really important too. Um, you know, speaking of of planning ahead for testing, you know, if you're gonna hook up a scope a scope probe, uh, to a, uh, to a board, you know, if it's one of the, if, if that, uh, test point is on something that's switching very quickly, right. You want to make sure you have very small loop coming off of that scope probe, right? Mm -hmm. So you're probably going to use the pin coming off the side instead of having, um, you know, the hook and then the long, the long wire lead, right? Long wire Mm -hmm. lead is fine for, you know, low, low frequency DC stuff. But when it's high speed you want to make sure that you have very tight tight loop so you need to have that ground right next to that scope probe so you can just you know put it right there on that test point and then bridge the two across directly Mm -hmm. and yeah if you don't put that right next to that uh to that uh test point um you're not going to be able to do that and then of course that introduces you know excess ringing or noise into your measurements and you know now your measurements inaccurate
0: well actually i have a question for you related to that um you know, you've probed a point and you have like, you just use the, you know, the, what, the four inch uh, ground lead, you hook it up to something and it causes the measurement to ring. Is it actually affecting the measurement only, or is it actually affecting the signal?
1: Are the two affecting each other?
0: Well, um, I mean, are the, the like what you see on the, the ringing you see on the scope, is that actually induced into the signal path?
1: Yeah, so, uh, that's, that's a, good question um so the the scope is, is actually loading down the 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 source right cuz this i mean the scope is essentially a circuit that you attach onto you know an output that has is sourcing something right um and then it's it's the parasitic that creates that excess ringing right and the parasitic in this case is the large loop inductance um so you are inducing that in the measurement the measurement is the receiver Right. In Mm, this case, the scope, the scope is Mm -hmm. the receiver, right? Um, It's not the, 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 I guess in that sense, if you think about it, the two are, I guess you could say influencing each other, but it's the only reason that's happening is because you have to actively connect, you know, the probe to the circuit and, Mm -hmm. and you're basically adding a load to that circuit. I see. Hopefully that makes sense.
0: It does. It does. So uh, other than like test points and things, are there other ways to, add testing to a board and besides the, you know, the, the the connectors and things like that?
1: Oh yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, you can eventually get into some domain specific type of testing, especially once you get into like RF, RF is really interesting. I was actually thinking about this in anticipation of this conversation. You know, there was one board that we, one iteration of a system that we had done in the past and it was uh, the system system relied on printed circuits, right? It was for an RF board, right? Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of printed circuits on it. um, And we weren't using components necessarily, just because the front end is actually receiving an RF signal. And, you know, there's no power on the board. So it needs to do some filtering and other things via printed circuits. Well, we wanted to have an additional circuit on there to also test So there was only one fabrication run needed to test all these different circuits. So now it's not as simple with RF as to just like, you know, start connecting a probe to something and then seeing if it works. You have to actually like design splitters in order to split off to these different circuits and test multiple things at once. Um, And it it can actually get pretty complex when you start doing RF. When you do um, high-speed design, one thing that you may see is actually basically creating like a test coupon on your own board. So think about what a manufacturer will do when they do controlled impedance. They put test lines on, on the edge of the rail um or they just make you know make a test coupon custom um but generally it's on the very edge of the rail so that they can do a TDR measurement um, or if they're a little more let's say high budget and they they can afford a nice VNA they'll they'll do it they'll do an S parameter measurement um but generally it's you know TDR so they'll do the TDR measurement and they'll put that you know right on your rail you can actually do that yourself you can actually run that test on your own if you have the equipment you just got to put the structure on your board um, and now there is a, a newer standard from IEEE called the IEEE P370 standard, and that standard deals specifically with putting these test structures on boards on, to qualify. I believe it's a S parameter measurements. Um, I'm not totally familiar with the standard because I'm not I'm not always doing you know SI testing on the boards that we create. Generally, the you know we're making it for the client, and the client is doing it. We'll do the simulation, and then you know we all kind of bring it all together and. Compare results and see what's going on, but that's just you know one example of you know what you can do in those little more domain specific areas to to plan to test some of the functionality on the board.
0: So I guess I'm I'm not quite understanding. So I, how would you use the test coupon?
1: Yeah, so the test coupon you could do your own TDR as parameter measurements, that kind of thing. And in fact, um, there are actually some companies, one of them is Wild River Technologies, what they will do, they have these, you know, big test coupons, like big, you know, fill up the screen test coupons, where they have multiple differential and single-ended lines running on a board over some material that you want to use, right? Both in strip line and in microstrip. So that way you can measure things like crosstalk with your specific signal source You can measure things like S parameters. You can measure things like TDR on your desired material set. So you can see if it's going to work in your particular system and help you meet your, whatever spec you have available in your system.
0: Also, is that, would that be more to, uh, to test the, um, I guess, I mean, it wouldn't be in, like say the, the RF path that you have, it would be something that would be off to the side. So you could basically drive it with a known input and to see how it responds, then you can infer that design and then you could basically uh, put it into your you know, basically drop it into the signal path?
1: Yeah, yeah, basically, yeah. It's it's basically to isolate the routing style as mm-hmm. a potential source of error in your design.
0: Oh, I see. Yeah. How about some in, other in-circuit testing, like, uh, like JTAG, things like that for, like, uh, digital design?
1: Yeah, definitely. Aside from putting test points everywhere, another thing that people will do just take a look at Arduino is, you know, if they have a microcontroller, just break out everything unused to a pin <laughs> header. <laughs> who, care, who cares what it is? Just put it on a pin header and I'll figure it out later. Right. And, you know, I've been asked to do that specifically by clients and, you know, you you get into the habit of just doing that. And that includes the JTAG interface. You put it onto the standard, you know, JTAG header and just leave it there. And if they're going to use it, great. If they're not going to use it, they, they depopulate the connector and, you know, call it a day. But yeah, whether it's JTAG or whether it's, you know, the extra SPI interface or, you know, all the extra GPIOs, yeah, that's that's really common, especially on Rev one of a prototype is just put it all on, uh, on pin headers. Depending on what you're trying to do with the prototype, that could be a good thing or a bad thing, right? It's a good thing because gives you access to those pins. So that way, if you made a mistake on the board with those circuits and you can confirm that there's a mistake on the circuit, you have another GPIO that you can use, right? So you just go back into your program, change which GPIO it's toggling, and then you get access to that GPIO on on a header. And then you can pull it off from a wire and then Mm -hmm. put it onto, you know, like a breadboard or something to then, you know, test your new version of this circuit. So, you know, that's not necessarily a bad thing, right? Same thing with like the SPY interface, or maybe you have, you know, an external module or, you know, something that that you want to use, like an eval board, and it needs to interface with, you know, SPY. That's actually a good thing. You can pull off the SPY interface from a header, and then you can test that component, you know, in isolation and really compare with what's going on on your custom board. So, you know, leveraging that, that eval board and that reference design from it is really valuable, especially if you have an error in in your custom design. I think sometimes eval boards don't get enough, enough love or attention, but they are really useful. And, you know, especially if you've never used a component before and you know that you're going to have to do the testing yourself, like just... Cough up the 10 bucks and buy the eval board, you know, or cough up the the 30 bucks or whatever and buy buy the thing from, you know, SparkFun and pay the shipping fee. And, you know, now you have a a known good copy of that uh, circuit that you want to implement. So you know what the expected functionality is. So if you have a problem, you can you really have a side by side comparison that you can do, and with all the other stuff broken out onto to headers, now you've got areas where you can really easily make connections. You know, I don't want to have to solder wires onto a board just to get my spy connection, or you know, my spy interface off of the board and onto the eval board. If I have everything on headers, I just you know connect a couple of wires, and all right, great. You know, now I can go back into the code and do my modification, and you know, spin it up again and, and see what the see what it should should work like
0: i see i see yeah that sounds good wow that's some good advice (laughs) yeah yeah mm -hmm.
1: well yeah and especially with with some of those boards you know some of them come with access to design files like at least the schematic you know what i mean Mm -hmm. so even then you've got another thing you can use to check to see if you made a mistake in your design you've got the schematic. And they've usually got like a little app note or something, or maybe it's detailed in the data sheet, how it should work. You know, there'll, there'll be some advice that'll help you out. Texas Instruments is really good about that. Maxim. Well, I guess now it's analog, but um, yeah. Analog and, and Maxim components, um, both, both really good about that.
0: Yeah, that's good. I've actually seen um, the the only ones I've, I've had direct access is, is to uh, analog devices, um, but uh, having them. On the website with their evaluation boards, they also include design files, you know, Gerber's and everything you, you're going to need to create your own board. So you can also kind of get a, a sense of how should I lay this board out? Are there any, you know, critical paths I need to consider? But and if you look at their designs, it's like, it kind of, kind of points out where you need to kind of pay a little extra attention to. That could be helpful.
1: Yeah, I, yeah, I 100% agree. The one the one place where I see people repeatedly screw up with this though is with power and powering a large digital component. Because what they'll see is they'll they'll look at the evaluation board and he- Heidi Barnes actually told me this in a podcast. Um they'll look at the evaluation board for a power product and they'll see, "Oh yeah, they put, you know, ferrites and stuff in the and pa- the power path, but they're connecting to a DC load <laughs> or they're intending for the board to connect to a specific DC load, to mm-hmm. then give you the spec that's that's listed for that product, when then then will pe- people will just copy and paste that into their custom design, and then they wonder why their power rail is glitching, and it's because they have a power product that was meant for a DC load, but they're powering up an AC load, which is their oh, digital processor.
0: Oh, that's where that comes from. Because I've heard many times you bring up the ferrite bead and uh, how it can be misused or. Uh, but so is that the word it is? it's, it's, oh, it depends on the load that you're driving that. It, yeah, it really it. does.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It oh. really does. Um, y- yeah. Fer- ferrites, uh, you know, they're inductors at low frequencies and then they're, they're basically, you know, decently sized resistors at, at moderate frequencies. And then they kind of behave like capacitors at high frequencies. They eventually go down to, you know, zero uh, to zero impedance. Mm-hmm. Um, the 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 reason the the fet or the sorry the ferrite can be bad is um it slows down the response on the rail where it's where it's connected in series and basically your power system won't be able to respond at the speed being demanded by the processor to then source power fast enough so this creates excess noise and then jitter on the output so the other the other problem is At low frequencies where it behaves inductive, if you have it on a rail that's drawing at low, low bandwidths or low frequencies, then that can create a transient that is then seen on another rail, which you were trying to isolate. And Mm. so that transient then gets affects another rail where there isn't a ferrite, but because you were using the ferrite as an isolation component, um, you, you can run into that problem. Usually the solution there is pretty simple, right? You just use separate supplies.
0: I see. I see.
1: And that's actually yeah. what you'll see in some FPGA reference designs is they'll have, you know, the 3v3 digital supply and the 3v3 analog supply. And the entire idea is that this analog supply is essentially trying to, it's usually for the PLLs, but it's essentially isolating the the digital stuff from from this other rail that might, might operate at the same voltage. And the issue is that, you know, if you have it all on the same rail, what people will do is they'll say, hey, oh, well. I have low, you know, high precision, low noise analog stuff at the same voltage as my digital stuff. And I know my digital stuff can create noise. I'm going to isolate them with the ferrite. And then they get into this, and then they get into that problem where they create glitches on one of the rails.
0: Okay. I got a question though. So short of, of using separate rails, is there a way to effectively isolate? Uh, Like people are trying to do with, with ferrites, but some other way.
1: Yeah. Essentially it's, it's more capacity. So, oh okay. So um th- this is actually really interesting okay because I'm glad you brought this up because I like to point out this contra- it, not a contradiction but I like to point out this one result. So um on the Altium blog um Kellanack had one article that uh, um you know she submitted in 2019 and in that article she showed some measurements uh of I think a 3 3 gigabit per second channel with and without a ferrite on the power rail for that for that particular uh interface okay and then with the ferrite you can very clearly see that there's more jitter in an eye diagram okay very very simple right put it on more jitter and noise take it off less jitter and noise okay mm-hmm. the, the problem is that in i think in 2014 there was another guy i forget his name but i read his design con presentation and he showed the exact opposite result like the exact opposite result <laughs> He even used the same oscilloscope that, huh. that Kella was using in her, in her images. So we know it's not the scope, you mm-hmm. know, it was also a large processor. It's not the exact same part number, but it was a large FPGA. Mm-hmm. And he showed that when he put the ferrite for this, you know, isolation function on this one rail, he was able to show that with the ferrite, he got less noise and without it, he got more noise. So, it's really hard to some not really hard, but sometimes it's hard to just generalize always put the ferrite or never put the ferrite. What I like to say is avoid the ferrite unless you can prove you need it.
0: That sounds reasonable. Yeah.
1: I think that's totally reasonable. Yeah. And so this is where you have to develop a test, some testing skills to be able to measure that output from that large processor. And if you can measure that output from that large processor, and you populate the ferrite versus populate a zero ohm resistor let's say and then you just measure it let's see what happens then you have a side by side test result that you can really show okay this produces more or less noise um, this is also where we start to rely on you know front end simulation kind of as a reference or as a check to just see whether or not this is going to work um, sometimes the reference design is really well documented and useful and then you know maybe the reference design has a ferrite And sometimes you can even purchase the reference design and you can experiment directly with that reference design. Pull off the ferrite, put a zero ohm, and if you get a better result without it, try it on your board.
0: Oh, very good. Very good. Can you, um, do you have any uh, projects, projects, highlighter project you've been working on lately? Yeah.
1: I gotta think here because I gotta figure out which one to to go over. <laughs> so <laughs> most of what we do is of course, you know, for clients or client driven. Um sure. there there are things I would love to do more for myself. They usually end up in a video. The most recent one I did was a flyback converter. Um and it was you know, just a simple flyback converter, a- approximately in a quarter brick, you know, format. Mm-hmm. And Basically, I put the uh, I put the design files on a website um, on my company website, and the uh, the video for it will be will be coming out soon. So the design files will be you know available in that in that video. Um, you can go download it and you know play around with it all you want. Um, someone if if they wanted they could add you know they could add posts to it and then mount it in another board just as a module, kind of like you would with like a quarter brick you know power converter. So that's the most recent one that I did. That one was fun because. As is often the case with uh, with flyback converters and uh, well, just isolated DC-DC converters in general, it requires a custom transformer in order to go from you know AC mains down to to three point three volts at the current that I wanted. Sometimes you can get away with a you know off the shelf you know transformer like from Worth or something. Um, this particular one will require a uh, will require a custom transformer, so I'm going to have to. Uh, I guess, brush up on my transformer assembly skills for this one when we actually build it. But yeah, that's the most recent thing that I did. So that one's going to be fun. As far as like, you know, client stuff, I mentioned a, a power system earlier. And then the other thing that I'll bring up that that is, um, I think, interesting just from like an industry trend perspective is we've been doing a lot of radar. In fact, over the past two and a half years, we've done, I think we're on our 10th radar system. In in the past two and a half years, that's a lot of radar, but it's all in you know seventy six to eighty one gigahertz. And so, if anyone is familiar with the radar frequency ranges, they will know that that is an automotive range. And then we have another one coming up on the in the near future, which will be at sixty gigahertz. And sixty gigahertz is something that you might use, like for drones. I see. I see. You can also do seventy, you know, seventy six to eighty one on drones. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that's so 60 gigahertz is a little more general for, for millimeter wave sensing.
0: Really? I don't um, have much experience with, with drones. Um, uh, besides a, being a flying device, what are some kind of technical, <laughs> some kind of, uh, engineering types of things that go into a drone?
1: Yeah. Um, I think the biggest challenge, which I, I will I will be honest, as a physicist, I I understand the mechanics of it, but I'm not a mechanical Mm -hmm. designer. Like Mm -hmm. I've never designed like a quadcopter. So actually being able to fly the thing at a reasonable speed and have enough power to be able to lift off. So you need a lot of uh, lift to weight ratio. And of course you need some power to be able to do that. So you need to have high power density, which of course, you know, then you have to break out the lithium batteries, but that basically means that like everything else in the design has to be lightweight. If you want this thing to be able to fly around for a long period of time. So that's Mm -hmm. one of the issues. Um, Once you start putting a system like, uh, like radar on it, Mm -hmm. you know, those can consume a fair amount of power. I see. And it's, it's the radar front end itself, but then it's also the digital section the processor can consume a lot of power because the the radars that we've been doing they are large virtual arrays that's a, just another way of saying they have a lot of antennas on them mm-hmm. and so the result is that you have a lot of differential pairs running at high speed coming off of the radars going into your processor so these are really you know mixed signal systems they're not just pure mm-hmm. pure rf systems anymore so, um, so you have so a lot of digital stuff
0: so the rf um, so would that be something you're using like as a sensor to see what the drone senses or as, or is that part of the communication back to the 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 transmitter or how does radar uh, be used
1: yeah well the the, ra- the radar is is of course you know the sensing and and tracking objects that are nearby once you have enough this is something interesting about radar but once you have enough uh radar emitters on a device it can now create images can actually create 2D visual maps just with some some color encoding in the mm-hmm. output data that you get from the radar. So you can basically take that data, put it on into a 2D map on your computer screen, assign a color coding to it, and you have what looks like an image. It's, it's really interesting. Um, but the newest radars are, are all creating images because they have high number of antennas on them. Wow. And a lot of startups are trying to get into this area.
0: Um, oh, that. so
1: that's, that's the first thing. The second thing, as you brought up is communication right back to somewhere else. Right. So that's, that's uh, cellular or wifi, Wi-Fi or Bluetooth. But of course, once you get to like, you know, Bluetooth, the, the data is, these are small bits of data, right? So it's, it's usually like, you're not sending the entire map. It's usually just like, I see object here. It's moving with this heading and, and speed.
0: Mm, I see. Object
1: two is here. It moves this heading and speed, that kind of thing.
0: That sounds awesome because I'm, I'm thinking that as far as the drones, I think my, my mind sin- instantly went to artificial intelligence um, or I guess machine learning, I guess once you sense it and then you said you're, you were processing it and then you can use some kind of machine learning to figure out what it is and what it's likely to be and things like that. It sounds like a fascinating topic.
1: That is exactly what the goal is. Yes, yeah. you are not the first person to to think of that or bring that up. Um, it has even been discussed uh, in I, in some academic papers. And you know, Tesla, I don't know how how close they are to that, but I seem to remember reading something from them about what they're doing, or maybe it wasn't from them, but from someone who had, I guess, you know, broken open one of their radars but mm-hmm. looking at how how they do this with radar and their in their radar system as part of their autopilot so so yes machine learning definitely being applied to it and part of the the reason is really actually very simple the reason is that it's hard to apply machine learning to video like to actually like do object identification and speed and heading and location all in the same run of video that's actually very very compute intensive. Whereas if you have a radar, you can measure a lot of those variables directly. You don't need machine learning to infer them, right? The radar sees an object. It knows the range. It knows the heading. It knows the speed, right? I've oh, already done four of those tasks immediately. Now, now you just have a vision system that says, oh, there's the object. I'm just going to do object identification.
0: Huh? That's fascinating.
1: <laughs> Man, so now is- I know that Yeah. Now the car knows that object over there at this range with this relative velocity is a stop sign. And -hmm. that other object is, you know, somebody's dog.
0: I see. I see.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) But if you tried to infer all of that from video, I mean, it's, it's impossible. It's not impossible. It's it's just a really, it's a high compute task. Whereas, you know, you leverage radar and now it becomes a lower compute task. I see.
0: I see. Wow. That's, that sounds fascinating. Wow. You you get to play with all the cool uh, games and things. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know,
1: here's the thing. I work with other people, right? So it's, you're part of a team. That's how you get to work on this kind of stuff, right? You got to be part of a team of people. And, you know, whether it's one of my guys or whether it's someone with the client or a third party contractor or whatever, right? You all got to come together and work on this stuff as a group. And that's how you get to, to make big accomplishments and do some fun things.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, I didn't mean you by yourself. I'm sure. (laughs) (laughs)
1: But But it is awesome to be part of that that kind of stuff
0: for sure. To to be honest with you, right now, I don't know if you you can't see it now, but I got chills on my arms uh, because the stuff to me is is absolutely fascinating, and um, and I'm just it's so interesting, it's so fascinating. Well, good. I'm glad
1: I can. I'm glad I could help you out with that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh my goodness wow so uh any other topics uh that come to mind that you might want to talk about or
1: you know not not at the moment but i'm sure something will come up and and that means that uh we'll end up having to do this again at some point so you know any old time you know where i'm at you know how to get a hold of me
0: definitely oh that's awesome that's awesome wow so uh oh so uh I don't want to end this. <laughs> um, so <laughs> I'm so happy that we got a chance to kind of uh, to, to connect and talk about all this engineering stuff. And uh, uh, if someone wants to get a hold of you, um, you know, after this podcast, what are some ways that they can ac- uh, get a hold of you?
1: Yeah, so uh, find me on LinkedIn. Um... I'm very easy to find on LinkedIn. Um, I'm usually talking about something electronics related. So just follow me on LinkedIn. You can send me a message. Um, you can also go to ZachariahPeterson.com. Uh, that is my personal website. Um, or you can go to uh, my company website, which is NWengineeringLLC.com. Um, The next or last easiest way to find me is go to Google and do a site-specific search for Altium.com and just type... Altium Zach Peterson or Altium Zachariah Peterson, and you will get pages and pages and pages and pages and pages and pages and pages pages of stuff. So go give that a shot and see what comes (laughs) up.
0: Excellent. That's, I definitely will. Um, Well, I really appreciate you joining me today and, uh, and I, I look forward to the next time we get together as well. Um, So, um, all right, friends, uh, that's it for today. I'm Paul Phillips, and I hope you join me again next time for Engineer to Be Excellent. Goodbye.